Today, you can hardly watch television or the news without hearing the term social justice. Social justice is banded about literally several times a day. Now, the social justice that they're talking about is the Karl Marx way, not Jesus' way. Uh, The social justice that they're talking about is the socialist communist way, not Jesus' way. Their social justice that they talk about is government taking away what the hard-earned money that people have, and they decide where that money goes. Most times, they keep it for themselves. And it fill a huge government bureaucracy. In fact, every time in history, and you can test me on this, I know what I'm saying, every time in history, a government exercises what they call social justice. It ends up concentrating the money and the power in the hands of the government elite. Now, I'm not saying look at Venezuela. I'm saying just look at me for a moment. The country of my birth, where I spent the first 19 years of my life, I have seen this. I've experienced that firsthand, firsthand. My country was known as a breadbasket. And within 10 years of so-called social justice, socialist government, it became a basket case. Trust me, when power is firmly established and the money concentrated in the hand of the dictators, the money is totally squandered. Question, what is social justice Jesus' way? <laughs> is there a social justice Jesus' way? The answer is absolutely yes. The Scripture shows it very clearly. First of all, social justice Jesus' way must begin by us viewing ourselves as managers and God is the owner, not the government. A steward is entrusted by God to manage our bodies, our monies, and our possessions, our time, and our gifts. All are managed for God and on God's behalf. The trouble always, always begins, whether it be an individual or community or society or a country, is when we begin to think that we are the owners. It is not surprising, therefore, when you hear people saying, this is my body and I can do whatever I want with it. It is my money. I can do whatever I want with it. This is my life, and I do what I want with it. This is the beginning of trouble. It can only go downward from there. John Wesley, who made a great deal of money by any standards, our time, his time, he made a great deal of money selling books and other things. And, but when he died, he had one British pound in his estate. He gave it all away. He gave it. That is social justice, God's way. This is social justice, Jesus' way. And John Wesley said, listen carefully to this quote. He said, when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you on the earth, he placed you here 
not as an owner, but as a steward, as a manager. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is all about stewardship. In the last message, we saw the Apostle Paul speaking about the stewardship of our liberty in Christ, the stewardship of our freedom in Christ. And he said, our stewardship holds our liberty with love, that our freedom in Christ is tempered with consideration for the weaker believer. Let me give you a word picture I hope that you will always remember. A word picture sometimes can illustrate much better than anything else. You have the freedom to move and wave your fist in any direction you want. But where my nose begins, your freedom ends. (laughs) Now, in my case, you have to end a long way away because I have a big nose. And in chapter 9, Paul tells us that all of life is a stewardship. All of life requires sacrificing of comfort, sacrificing of resources, sacrificing of time, sacrificing of self, sacrificing for the sake of the one who sacrificed his all for you. That is social justice Jesus' way. Not to drag things out from people by force, no. Not to acquire things out of people by law, not to demand it by the threat of imprisonment, no. But to appeal to us as recipients of God's grace, to appeal to us as recipients of God's blessings, to appeal to us as recipients of God's gifts. This chapter, chapter 9, divides itself into two sections very easily. In verses 1 to 14, Paul gives us six, six reasons as to why we should give of ourselves to gospel work. I'm going to repeat that word, gospel work, so many times in this message until you get it. Six reasons why we should support gospel work. Then in verses 15 to 27, the second half of the chapter, he gives us an overriding reason as to why we must run the race to win. To win. Now, in the Christian life, not everybody gets a trophy. You do not get participation trophy. You have to win. And winning is not a dirty word in the Scripture. It's a good word. It's a beautiful word. I'm going to show you this. First, he gives us six reasons as to why we must, we have no option but be stewards. Reason number one, verses one to six. Reason number one, giving to gospel causes, I keep saying gospel causes or gospel preaching ministry, is a must. Secondly, he says, verse 7, because giving to gospel ministry helps frees up the ministers to minister. Thirdly, verses 8 to 11, he said, giving to gospel ministry is very biblical. It's run through all the Scripture. Fourthly, verse 12, the apostles have practiced it and taught it. Five, verse 11, 
God ordained giving to gospel ministry. And 6, verse 14, Jesus commands giving to gospel ministry. Now, here's a grand rule, okay? Before I get going with those six reasons for giving, if you bristle when the Word of God talks about giving to gospel ministry, it can only be due to two reasons. One, you have not yet known the joy of being a manager and a steward. Or it's because you still think that all of your possessions are really yours, and not that you are mere manager, that God is entrusting you to manage and to manage well, and He will hold you accountable both in this life and in eternal life for how you manage the stewardship. Or this could be because you just rejected biblical teaching of stewardship. Now, you, only you know this. Only it's between you and God. It may be because you have yet have not learned what it is to slowly but surely die to self and live for Christ. <laughs> Listen to me. If you give out of guilt, if you give because you've been pressured to give, if you give for any other reason than believing that God owns it all and that He has given it to you and He requires you to manage it wisely and to give it generously, then you haven't started first base yet. I know, I know, we joke about the flints and the tightwads and the misers. They're all cousins. They're all related. But I'm not going to joke about this important matter. There used to be a great Methodist evangelist by the name of John R. Mott. John R. Mott, not only in the early 1900s, was a great soul winner, and he held great evangelistic outreach in Korea and in Egypt and elsewhere in the world. But he raised equivalent to a billion dollars of today's money for gospel work. He himself received nothing, but he raised it all for gospel work. And John Armott said, whenever I preached about salvation of souls or stewardship of money, I never joke. He said, because he considered those two are the Siamese twins for world evangelization. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, Paul tells the Corinthians as to why they should give to gospel ministries. Here we go. Because the gospel ministry produces eternal results. It produces men and women who escaped from hell to heaven. It produces Christians who become disciples, uh, who disciple others. When you give to a cause for recognition— when you give in order to get something, whether thanks or whatever it is, you already have received your reward. When you give for any reason other than your reward in heaven, you already have received your reward here. When you give for eternal fruit, when you give for the cause of righteousness, when you give so that the lost be found and the found be discipled, then you have an indescribable eternal reward. Now, Paul points out to the Corinthians themselves, he said, you are the proof 
of that ministry, you're the seal of my effectiveness of my ministry, gospel ministry in you. Therefore, you need to support gospel ministry, even though he himself did not want anything. I'm going to come back to that. Look at verse 7. Your giving will free up ministers to minister. He said, just like the soldier does not provide for his own rations, neither should the soldier, the foot soldier in God's army. Just like the farmer who plants a vineyard shares the fruit of that vineyard, so is the planter of God's vineyard. Just like the shepherd of the flock drinks milk out of the flock, so does the spiritual shepherd. In fact, a story told to me, we talk about giving, and he said, uh, our pastor who's bivocational went to visit one of the farmers. And he said to him, he said, uh, Bob, if you have a hundred horses, would you give 50 horses to the church? He said, absolutely. He said, but if you have a hundred cows, would you give 50 cows to the church? He said, of course, pastor, I would. The pastor leaned over very closely to this farmer, and he said to him, if you have two pigs, would you give one to the church? And the farmer looked at him and said, cut that out, pastor. You know I have two pigs. <laughs> you give back to God out of what you read is given you. Not of what you hope that he gets, but what you read is given you. Thirdly, verses 8 to 11, it is biblical and here the Apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain. Here's a Yusuf interpretation. Listen to me. <laughs> you do not give to whoever screamed the loudest, but you give where you've been spiritually fed. And that is why giving to the church is not the same as giving to museums and arts and entertainments and politics and education, all good things, all good things. Why? Because non-believers can give to all these causes just as well, in fact, if not more. Only the believer gives to gospel causes. Giving where you are spiritually fed and encouraged and challenged is truly giving back to God Himself. So, Giving to gospel ministry is also to, in order to see to it that others are fed, encouraged, and challenged. But there's more. Only the spiritually well-fed believer will give to those who provide them with the spiritual nourishment. When you give to biblical sound ministry, you are not giving to a cause. You are giving directly to God. Did you know that? You're giving directly to God. And God is the one who will multiply the seed. He's the only one who can. The Bible said he is no man's debtor. He will not be holding to you. The Scripture said, He who sows sparingly will reap also sparingly, but he who sows generously will reap generously. Fourthly, all of the apostles practiced it. Verse 12. While Paul 
chose not to receive support from the Corinthians deliberately. I'm going to explain this to you, but in Acts 16, we see that he received support from the Bereans, he received it from the Thessalonians, and, and, and from the Philippians, and from the Macedonians. Why? Because Paul knew that in this particular case, the case of the Corinthians, had he received support from them, it would hinder the gospel. That was his conviction. I hate to draw attention to myself. God only knows, my family knows, but I'm going to do this for the glory of God. In a very similar way, 30 years ago, I made a decision, and I made it very loud and clear, and it is witnessed to by so many people sitting in the congregation here today. When we started leading the way, which I didn't really start it, I was dragged into it. And I'm grateful to God for that. I had consultants. I had other friends who have served on boards of other media ministries who said to me and quoted the Scripture that I must receive financial support from leading the way. I said, no. It may be fine for everybody else. It's not for me. I insisted those many years ago that will not have a red cent that sticks to my hand from leading the way. Why? I don't want anybody to say, well, he started that media ministry to enrich himself and hinder the gospel. That was never my desire. My desire always, always to give the glory to God. I'm grateful to the church, and we have made a decision from day one that we're going to live within our means and whatever the church supports us. And I'm so grateful to God because I can tell you I have been blessed out of my socks. Amen. Amen. Give God glory. But the rest of the story is God is no man's debtor. God is no man's debtor, and God's promise will be fulfilled if it takes a hundred years. Paul said, while it is his choice not to receive support from the Corinthians. Others did receive their support from the Corinthians. He said, that's absolutely fine. It is absolutely fine for them. Fifthly, verse 13, because God ordained this type of stewardship. See, the priests in the temple in the Old Testament, they all were supported by the tithes and the offerings in the temple. But even way before the temple, way before the priesthood of the Levites, way before the law of Moses was given and the Ten Commandments and all of that, way before that, Abraham tithed not his income, but his whole net worth to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ, the great high priest. Sixthly, verse 14, because Jesus commanded it, you know, when Jesus sent the disciples, 70 of them, he sent them out two by two in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. When he sent them out, he said, the labor is worthy of his hire. And that they will receive their support as they faithfully serve the flock of God. As they are blessed others, they will be blessed. Now I come to the second half of this chapter. The running of the race for the Christian life is a stewardship. Life and the running of the race of life, Paul said to him personally and to every believer, it should be 
the whole ministry and the whole life is a stewardship. He does not serve as someone who under compulsion to serve, or like we see some, some people think it's a sense of drudgery, and it's, it's a duty to do it, and you just got to get through it. You got to do it, muddling your way through life. No! Paul is saying, I am willing to go to any length. I'm willing to go any distance. I'm willing to endure any hardship. I am willing to forbear any insult. I am willing to persevere any indignities. I am willing to cope with any harassment. I am willing to stoop down to any level in order to win people to Christ. Now, there are some preachers who say that when Paul said that I became all things to all men, it means that Paul compromised his convictions, that Paul just modified the gospel for the sake of the relevance of the day, that he changed his message to fit the audience, to, to please the audience, that, that he wanted to make it palatable and acceptable to non-repentant sinners. Hogwash. Paul would not change the truth of the Word of God to satisfy anyone. And if a person is offended by the Word of God, that's their problem. If a person is offended by sound biblical teaching, that is their problem. If a person is offended by biblical morality, that's their problem. Do you know why? Because that person is offended by God Himself. And if God is offended by my behavior, my lifestyle, then that is really, really, really my problem. And that is why verses 24 to 27, Paul exhorts all believers to run the race well. How? By limiting our liberty through self-control. Oh, self-control. <laughs> that's another word that's not used these days. Self-control. Limiting our liberty through self-control. Why? Because God's winners do not turn their freedom into laziness. Because God's winners understand that a steward must exercise self-control. And that is why Paul gives us an example of the athlete. Look at the Scripture with me, please. And he's speaking to the Corinthians about athletes because they understood what athletes are all about. Corinth hosted the second most important games. Athens hosted the Olympics. That was the most important annual games. But Corinth hosted the Athenian athletic events, the Athenian games. Next to the Olympics was the most famous and the Corinthians understood because they saw with their own eyes how hard those athletes exercise, how hard they work in order to win. These athletes came from all over the Roman Empire. They came, and they came early, sometimes up to months or two months ahead of the game schedule. They spent hours, and they watched them probably working, these supervising, being supervised in their workout every day. They worked hard. They worked hard. And yet, out of a large number of athletes, only one wins. Only one wins. Now, in the Christian race, Paul is saying, we don't compete with each other 
We are not competing with each other. No, no, no. We are competing against obstacles. We are competing against temptations that we face. We are competing against the enemy of our soul. Because God does not just want one of His children to be winners. He wants every one of His children to be winners. Everyone. Everyone to be a winner. It is the longing of His heart In the Assamian Games, the prize was a pine wreath. Pine wreath. You work so hard all year, and you run your heart out to get this. This type of wreath is worthless, but it represented to the athlete at the time fame and acclaim and hero worship. And these athletes were immortalized. But this type of immortality was as mortal as both the wreath and the athlete. (laughs) All die. Both die. Both die. But believers in Jesus do not run for a short-lived wreath that is literally be dead in a few weeks' time. That's all it is. It's falling apart. No, we don't do that. That's not for us. Believers in Jesus do not run for a short-lived fame. Believers in Jesus do not run for a short time, short-lived cheer, but that we run to receive the crowns that are imperishable in the life that is truly immortal. For a student to succeed, he must study hard. For an athlete to win, he must work out for long hours. For an artist to be an accomplished, long hours of practice are required. Ah, but for the believer to live a life that is above mediocrity, we have to be sacrificial givers of everything, even of what is near and dear. For the believer to live a life of an effective witness, spiritual discipline must be exercised. Look at the athletes again. The athletes know that they have to restrain their liberty in order to win. They must discipline their sleep. They must discipline their diet. They must discipline their exercise program And the one thing that an athlete cannot afford, listen to me, listen to me, believers, I know, I know what I'm talking about. The one thing that an athlete cannot afford to do is to live by his feelings. We don't even ask people, what do you think anymore? We say, how do you feel? (laughs) They cannot allow their body to tell their mind what to do. And yet, That's what many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ do today. They let their bodies dictate to their minds what to do. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like studying the Word of God. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like serving. I don't feel like witnessing. I don't feel like giving. What has your feeling got to do with it? The Word of God exhausts us again and again and again, just like the athlete here in this passage. Like the athlete, we must 
tell our minds, let our minds tell our bodies what to do, not the other way around. Just like the athlete cannot allow his feelings to instruct his mind, so must the believer. Just like the athlete's mind leads his body, so must the believer in Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Why? Why? Verse 27, the last verse in the chapter, tells you why. Paul said, I do this lest I become disqualified. Lest I become disqualified. There are two views on this being disqualified. There are some who believe when Paul says, lest I become disqualified, meaning losing his salvation. And this is how they explain it away. They point to the fact that we must never presume that we are saved regardless of what we do and how we live. That's a good point, but I'm going to come to the other side of that. They say that no Christian can afford to take lightly the warnings of the Scripture, and I agree with that. But it's not going to surprise any of you to know that I have a different point of view. If these dear people want us to take our salvation seriously, they are right in their intention. We must take it seriously. And he's talking, if we're talking about true believers, not the professing Christians, I'm talking about true believers. Then I believe the Scripture is very clear that salvation for the true believer is sealed in Jesus for all of eternity. And when a true believer persists in sin, God has a way of disciplining the true believer. Remember from chapter 5, he says, even it, even it comes to a point of taking his life in order to save his soul. That's how serious God takes his truly adopted children. He has a way of dragging you back to himself, kicking and screaming. I know because I did that. And when I got dragged out of the wilderness, it was full of briars and thorns, and the blood is everywhere. Figure of speech. Scratches of the world all over me. But he brought me back to himself. Scripture is very clear. Nothing shall separate us. That is talking about the elect of God. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God even if he has to drag you back, kicking and screaming. Listen to me. In fact, that is why I think some Christians are lurching from defeat to defeat to defeat to defeat and living a defeated life. Some believers are like some of those athletes who start with a great deal of enthusiasm and a desire to win, and they work hard, and they start their training seriously, and then they lose interest and stop running the race of faith. Let me ask you this. Have you come to a point of feeling that you just cannot run the race anymore, and you are disqualifying yourself from the crown of righteousness, from the crowns that are prepared for the believers? Have you given up the race? Have you stopped your spiritual training program? And you're listening to the devil who says, well, now you failed, just stay failed. He can't get up anymore. He's lying to you. 
I want to tell you today on the authority of God's Word. Get back into the training program. Get back into the race. Get back into spiritual workout program. Because God wants you to win. Say that with me. God wants you to win. God is cheering for you. He wants you to be a winner. God wants you to be victorious in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org. 